Praise God. Thanks, uh, thanks Todd, for, uh, for sharing with us. Um, I hope that yeah, we were inspired and encouraged and convicted um, to join in with the work of mission. We may not all go to Cameroon or Papua New Guinea or North Korea or wherever uh, other missionaries, uh, you know, the places you think of when you think of missionaries, but we're all called to mission, and we can do that. And I love what, they, what, what you know, the lady said. We may never see a believer from Papua New Guinea, but as we pray for them, we can see them in heaven and say, yeah, I was praying for you. And this is, um, man, this is vital work that, uh, that's being done. And whoever you are, whatever your gifts, skills, talents, uh, we can be involved. And we ought to be. We need to be involved in the work of mission, either going, sending, or being disobedient, as, uh, as Piper puts it. So thanks, Todd. We've been praying for you uh, and, and Esther and your family for a while. I know that uh, your house church has been lifting you up and interceding on your behalf before uh, y'all ever met. And so... Uh, we will continue to do that. We, you know, we can't promise much, but we will promise that we'll be, be praying for you guys and, and loving you in that way and as best as we can. So, yeah, let's, uh, let's be faithful to uh, our promises, y'all. Uh, today we continue as we uh, talk about faith here. And I uh, remember, uh, remember it was maybe a handful of years ago, <coughs> we had a, a youth retreat. And during our, our youth retreat, we, you know, typically we do different games and activities, break up into teams and, and do different uh, games to win prizes and, and win points and stuff. And one year uh, we decided, instead of just doing games, why don't we do this thing called Pilgrim's Progress? Pilgrim's Progress, based after uh, the book that John Bunyan wrote, second most uh, popular book in the history of the world outside the Bible. Uh, the activity is basically an obstacle course that takes our youth through the progression of the journey of faith. So there are different obstacles as they're broken up into teams, and they would go through different obstacles. There would be uh, the wall of despair that they had to somehow get all of their people over. Uh, there was this field of faith that they needed to traverse as they were duck walking, and, and by faith and encouragement, they had to get there. There was a, a path of perseverance and all kinds of different things that were set up in order to demonstrate the difficulties of the Christian life and the things that we will face on the journey on the way to the celestial city, which is heaven. I think a, a lot of our people, maybe as we began that time, thought, well, this is just going to be like uh, every other game time. It's going to be fun. We're going to get sweaty. We're going to get messy. And then we're going to go take a shower and go do our free time. But after one or two stations, our students began to realize, wow, this is a little bit harder than our normal game time. It's a little bit trickier. It's a little bit more demanding, kind of like the Christian life. Maybe we enter into Christian life thinking this is going to be pretty simple like everything else I've experienced, but uh, very quickly we begin to realize there's doubt, there's discouragement, there's pain. It requires perseverance and endurance. There's a lot of challenges that we go through in the Christian life. And after a couple stations, some of our students were complaining. They were tired. They were sore. They couldn't do it. But after a little bit, the desire to quit and the desire to complain gave way to a different kind of an experience. And we began to see, instead of people talking about, I don't want to do this anymore, I don't think I can do it, the verbiage shifted and people began using language of encouragement. When one person said, I don't think I can go any further, it was an older person in our youth ministry who said, we're going to get there together. Some people, when they felt like they couldn't walk anymore, were being carried on, their, uh, on someone else's back, and they were saying, we're going to get through this together. 
There were other groups that had been to that station before, and as they got through each station, as they were passing by one another, they said, you can do it. You guys, you can do it. You're almost done. This station is hard, but you can get through it if you work together. And as they were shouting encouragement to one another, the next to last station was the cross, where out in a big field, people were remembering and thinking as Scripture was read over them of the crucifixion account, what it is, why we run this race of faith, because Jesus gave his life For us, that's why we find it worthy to go through the life of faith, even in the midst of its difficulties. And as Scripture is being read over them, and as they're going through this endurance, as they remember what Christ went through on the cross, with their eyes set on heaven, the last station, after they finished the crucifixion, we didn't crucify anybody, but after they finished that station, as they're hearing about the crucifixion, they get into the main worship room, where there's worship music playing and there's popsicles and they get to the celestial city and they realize that, yeah, it was hard, but everything about this was worth it and we made it and we're so glad that we didn't quit on the Christian journey. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 tells us that on this pilgrim way, there are clouds of witnesses. There is a cloud of witnesses. There's a cloud of faith who has been there and done it and at the same time who runs alongside with us who are shouting at us, reminding us and encouraging us that it's worth it. Keep on going. Don't give up because when you get to the other side and you see what we now see, you're going to realize that everything we endured was so worth it. Today as we look into Hebrews 11 chapter 4, I want to look at the first face in the cloud of faith and see what he tells us about faith and what it is to live a life surrendered to the Lord God. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to read verse 4, just one verse. Uh, The true story of Abel and his brother Cain comes to us from Genesis chapter 4. We're not going to read it today. uh, I'll refer to it and I'll uh, reference it, but we're going to read Hebrews 11 uh, verse 4. This is God's word. By faith... Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. This is God's word. Three times it says in here, by faith, and then a clause follows it. I want to talk about the faith of Abel. In Abel and Cain, in their true story, there are three firsts that come, at least three firsts that come. One, we see the first siblings in Scripture. Cain and Abel were the children born to the first people, Adam and Eve. So we see the first siblings. The second thing we see is the first sibling rivalry. Right? You wonder why you can't get along with your brother, why you can't get along with your sister. It goes all the way back to the first siblings, Cain and Abel. In fact, one of the things that we see is that Cain was so jealous and so distraught over the fact that his brother Abel was accepted that in his anger, he ended up killing his brother Abel. We see one thing very clearly. You see this from the beginning. You see it throughout Scripture. When our relationship with God is right, then our relationship with people is okay. But when our relationship with God is not right, it will affect and it will color and it will hinder our relationship with other people. Cain was not right with God, and because of that, it caused him to have all kinds of problems with his brother Abel, even to the point of taking his brother out into a field and killing him. Not only do we see the first sibling rivalry, but we see the first offering of worship in Genesis chapter 4 as both Cain and Abel offer to God 
something. What do we see as we juxtapose and contrast, compare these two offerings from Cain, the one who did not have faith, and Abel, the one who did have faith? What do we see? Three things. Uh, we're going to pull them out of chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 4. The first thing is this. Faith, okay, faith brings God what he wants, not just what we want to give him. Okay. Faith brings God what he wants, not just what we want to give to him. Uh, you've heard me talk about my uh, growing up. Uh, I had uh, a little toad named Gregory. I look back in my, in my files, and I think the last time I talked to this was about four years ago, so I think maybe you have forgotten. But I had a pet toad named Gregory, and he was a cute little thing, and we got him at a prayer house in, in Maryland, and we wanted to, obviously, we didn't want Gregory to die, and so we would feed him. We would go to the local pet store, and we would buy a bag, Ziploc bag of crickets, 15 crickets for a dollar. We'd get them, and then we would feed them to Gregory. Gregory was, as he got older, started going blind in one eye, and so the only way that he could catch the cricket is if he knew the cricket was there, and the way that he knew the cricket was there was because the cricket would move around. But when he got blind, he could no longer catch up to these crickets, so we would have to cut the legs off of them so that they would move around, but they wouldn't be able to jump around, so they could actually eat them. So in time, that's the way it was with Gregory. You know, when I would get that bag of Ziploc, that Ziploc bag of crickets, what would infuriate me the most, when I would pay my dollar to get that bag of crickets was when I would get dead crickets in that bag. People are like, are you kidding me right now? I paid a dollar for 15 crickets, and there is one or there are two or there are three dead crickets in here. What am I going to do with a dead cricket? Are you kidding me? Gregory will not eat that dead cricket. How do you, what do you expect me to do with that? I get so upset because even at a young age, I understood that certain offerings were not acceptable to even a pet toad. Now in Genesis chapter 4, it tells us if that's the same thing, if that's true of toads, then how much more so is it true of the God to whom we give our worship? Genesis chapter 4, it tells us that both Cain and Abel brought their worship before the Lord God. Now, it doesn't tell us specifically what it was, but here's one thing it does say. It says that Cain brought some of his fruit. So Cain was a farmer, and Abel was a shepherd. Cain worked with vegetables and fruit, and Abel worked with animals. Okay? Now, that's not that important because at that time, there was no mandate that said you have to bring an animal sacrifice, nothing like that. Just what you had, you bring it to God. But here's what it says. Cain brought some of his fruit. It says Abel brought the, uh, the fat part of the firstborn of his offering. In other words, what was it that we see from Genesis chapter 4? It says that Abel brought the very best that he had to God in worship. Whereas Cain just brought whatever he wanted to bring to God. And what Hebrews 11 tells us, hey, this is what faith is. Faith gives God not only the best, it gives what he wants, not just what we want to bring to him. My, I, I love my kids, I love my family, but um, here's my reality for, uh, for most of my life. 
Uh, I don't like sharing bottles of juice or bottles of water or forks with people. I just don't like doing that. It's weird to me. I don't like sharing spit with people. Uh, maybe I'm a germ freak. Maybe it's just, it, I'm just weird like that. But even with people say when you have kids, it changes. But it, sometimes it changes. Yeah, I could share a fork with my, my kids. But there are times where I'm driving uh, one of my kids to school in the morning, and they've got their breakfast. Usually they've got a banana, and I like eating bananas. They're eating a banana in the car, and at some point they say, Daddy, I don't want my banana anymore. They don't want my banana. I don't want my banana anymore. I say, why not? And either they'll say, oh, I'm full or it's yucky or there's this brown thing on it. I don't want this brown part in my banana. And so they'll give it to me and they'll take it out of the, of the peel and they'll give it like, like squeeze and it's got their like handprints on. They'll give it to me. Usually I like eating bananas. But when I get that, I'm like, Manny, Elijah, I don't want this banana. I don't want this banana anymore. If you know you're not going to finish your banana, if you're not that hungry, then give daddy the first bite, not the last bite of it. Because by the time I get it now, the only thing left is brown stuff, or the only thing left is your fingerprints on it. The only thing left is like there's saliva on and that dry banana has become all wet. I don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want your leftovers. I want the first parts of what you give to me. And that's what God is saying here. Saying, I don't want your leftovers. I want the best that you have. But when you look at Hebrews 11, it says, by faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice. So what's he saying? He's saying the most important thing is not the fact that he offered the leftovers. It's that he didn't offer it in faith. And so here's what faith means in this context, because faith is often tied to worship, at least here it is. saying when we bring our best to God. And we do that by faith because we're believing that what he wants and what he desires, that he's worthy of us bringing that to him. Can I ask you a question? You came to worship this morning, and this is worship in a very narrow sense. All of life is worship, but let me ask you for practical purposes. When you came to worship this morning, are you giving God the very best that you have? Or are you giving God a leftover worship? Are you bringing God what you want to give to him? Or are you giving him what he wants you to give to him? Here's what this looks like. I just <clears throat> make it as practical as I can. Having <clears throat> the best worship, giving God the very best worship that we can give to him begins long before Sunday morning. The people who have the best worship experience on Sunday are the ones who are the best worshipers Monday through Saturday. We worship well during the week, then this time doesn't mean oh, I have to come to church again. I'm not sure if I should come. The most important decision on Sunday morning doesn't become what should I wear, but it's how early can I come, how well can I prepare myself to come to worship. That's what it means to give our best. It happens on Saturday night. What we do on Saturday night oftentimes determines how amazing our worship experience will be on Sunday morning. It, it, it's about saying, how can I best prepare myself? Because when the word of God comes in, this is a seeding. There are seeds being planted into your heart. But before there's a seeding, there has to be a weeding, right? A taking out of our weeds. And a lot of times what we do on Saturday night is we put more weeds into our heart. Hey, what do you do on Saturday night? How does that prepare you for worship? If I'm investing into my heart, Things like sensuality and violence and cursing by the things that I watch on TV or the places that I go, by the people that I hang out with, then I can't give my best to God on Sunday morning. 
It's about making intentional choices and intentional decisions about what we do on Saturday night so that our hearts can be pure and open to receiving what God wants to give to us and what he wants, uh, that we can give to him what he wants on Sunday morning. When it's time for us to greet people, to say hello to people, it's about realizing that in this moment, okay, there are people here, okay, there are people here for whom they need to see Jesus. And I can be as like Jesus, the hands and feet of Christ, to somebody here who desperately needs him today. See, here's what a lot of us, and you know what, I'm an introvert. I just want to sit by myself. I'm going to come in late. I'm going to hang out in the bathroom, and I'm going to roll up as soon as the announcements start coming on. But here, worship, giving our best worship to God, means understanding that I have the ability to give to somebody a blessing that they desperately need in this time and in this place. So I was saying, I can't go, and I'm not, I'm not going to get energized by saying hello to 15 people, but maybe there's one person that I see who's new, or there's one person that I see who looks alone, or there's one person I haven't seen in a while, and I'll just go and I'll talk to them, and I'll be the hands, and I'll be the feet of Christ, and I'll go to that person. I will treat them as if they were Jesus, and I will look at them as if I were the hands and feet of Christ. That's why we do what we do. It's not because, oh, you know, we need some time for people to come in here and and this is the buffer so that people can come in on time. That's not what it is. There's very much intentionality because in giving our best worship, there are people who need to belong before they can believe. And that's what it means why we do this time to give our best to God. And then the times of singing come. It means that our hearts are ready, that we're not just watching. We're not here to, to listen to a concert. We're not just here to listen to other people sing. We're here to give of ourselves because when we sing to the... This is what God commands in Scripture. He doesn't say, listen to other people sing with all of your heart. He says, sing to the Lord. He never gives a caveat if you sing well or if you've got a nice voice or if you're not tone deaf. He says, wherever you are, whoever you are. That's why he doesn't sing, say, sing beautifully to him. He says, sing loudly to God. He says, I don't care how you sing. Just sing with all of your heart. Sing with your being. Give yourself to God. Because when you do, here's what happens. Your proclamation leads to conviction. But the other thing that happens is as you sing, you begin to bless other people. There are times when I'm looking at the words on the screen, and I've said this before, I'm having a hard time believing that thing to be true. But then I hear people around me and people behind me, and I know who's in front of me, I know who's around me, because I've greeted them during greeting time, and I know what they're going through in life, and I know their stories, and I know what their experiences are, and I hear them singing, blessed be the name of the Lord, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of difficulty, and that helps me to say, yeah, I believe this more now than when we began singing this song because I hear the songs being lifted up from the voices of other people. And then we hear the word of God. You know, in educational psychology, the best grades, and educational psychologists have said this, the best grades in the class are the ones who sit in the front row and who sit down the middle. This is called the educational T, the T of the classroom, down the middle and in the front. These are the people who get the best grades. I don't mean to pick on anybody who's sitting in the back because some of you have to be there because you got babies and stuff. But if you're constantly choosing to sit back there, why? I'm, not, I'm trying not to look at y'all. <laughs> but why? Shouldn't the attitude... See, in, in the book of James, okay, it says this is the attitude. When we come to listen to the word of God, it's like we're listening to a will. Meaning someone has passed away, they're giving us an inheritance, and you have been included in it. If that was being given to you, would you not come early to make sure you didn't miss anything wouldn't you come and sit with just an eager sense of expectation i'd be leaning up just to make sure i didn't you said a 2015 mustang just making sure that i'm hearing everything because i know that what i hear 
could give me life. This is what he's saying in giving our best to God. And when we pray, it's not zoning out and thinking about the things that I have to do. You know, sometimes I know I, <laughs> I said this to somebody. There was a time where I, I was preaching a sermon. One of our guys was in the back practicing his golf swing. It's like, how can you give your best to God when you're thinking about your golf swing? Right? That's going to discourage you, not encourage you. Right? So maybe some of us are thinking about that. We're thinking about all the things that need to be done today. We're thinking about that party that I need to go to or that I know we've got a golf tournament today and we're thinking, God, help me to, when, when we're praying, instead of praying for our missionaries, we're praying, help me to win the golf tournament. We're focused on, yeah, what are we focused on when we bring our worship before the Lord God? That when someone is praying up here, instead of being, oh, everyone's eyes are closed, I'm going to check my <laughs> Instagram to see how many people like my last picture. We're praying and listening as if that prayer was coming out of our own lips. And we're engaged, and if they pray something that we long to see happen, we say amen, and we nod our heads in agreement as if we were a a delegation going to talk to the president, and one person was representing us, and they say something that we agree with, we start nodding our head in agreement. This is what we do when we say amen. Yes, Lord, we believe this to be true. Right? This is what it means to give our, and there's a bunch of other things it means. But when you came to worship today, was your expectation that I'm going to give my best to God? I'm going to give God what he wants, not just what I want, because that's what faith does. That's the first thing. Second thing we see, by faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. The second thing that we see is that faith knows that whom we Trust is more important than what we bring. It says, by faith, Abel was able to offer a better offering than Cain. Here's what that means. Because Cain did not have faith, even if he brought the very best that he had, it wouldn't be acceptable to God. Let me say that again. Because he did not have faith, even the best that he brought would not be acceptable to God. I think a lot of times we try and do this, okay? We don't have faith in God. We don't don't trust that God is our Savior. We think, I will bring my best as a way of earning the acceptance of God. That's what Cain tried to do. Did not have faith, but brought what he had, saying even if he brought his best, apart from faith in God, he wouldn't have been accepted. Because here's our reality. Faith knows it's more important about whom we're trusting than it is about what we bring. In Scripture, interesting thing about faith, faith is always connected to grace. Faith is always a response to grace. Faith is always a response to God's initiating act of grace. That's what faith is. So how did Abel have faith? I think every child wants to know their parents' story. You think at some point Cain and Abel wanted to know mom and dad's story? Mom and dad, man, I can't, can you imagine being like Adam and Eve's kids? Like, what was it like to walk with God? Like, what was that like to hear his voice, to know intimacy? What was that like? What was the Garden of Eden like? Man, I would long to have heard those stories. 
And mom and dad, why'd you get kicked out? <laughs> why are we in this place? Right, what's going on? What did you do? And they would tell the story. If you ever, I mean, one of my friends, and I don't know if he, if he was quoting somebody else, but he said one of the reasons why our parents are so broken is so that we would not grow up idolizing them because we as children often have tendencies to do that, don't we? We think mom and dad are the best. They're awesome. They're amazing. But as soon as they fail, we realize that my hope has to be placed in another. And so as Cain and Abel are hearing the story, I'm sure at least Abel, at one point, Adam and Eve said, you know what, there was a promise, though. As broken and as dark as this world is, God gave us a promise. We see it in Genesis 3.15. We talked about it a few weeks back. That one day the serpent who tempted and caused the fall of humanity into a spiraling decay into death and disease and sin, one day God said, I'm going to send someone. You were banished from the garden, but someone is going to come who's going to bring you back into the garden, who's going to bring you back into the paradise. The serpent is going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And Abel thought, wow, one day such a person is going to come. And he put his wholehearted trust in God that God would be faithful. And he said, because you're going to do it, this is grace. Abel said, I will trust you, God. I will believe in you. I'll believe in you to the point where I would give the very best that I have by faith because that's what faith does. It responds to grace in the way that you know that you know, that you believe, is not only shown in action, but it's shown in us giving our very best to God. Abel said, because I'm accepted, because of grace, I will give my best to you, God, in faith. And it shows up in his worship. Cain said, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Therefore, I will give what I have to give to you in order that I might be accepted. Who are you trusting today? Are you trusting in God to be the one who brings you into a right relationship with him? Or are you trusting in yourself? As much as we say, I'm trusting God, here's how you know. When Cain brought his offering before God, and God said, no, 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 that's not how you're accepted. That offering is in unacceptable to me. Cain became very angry. Because he felt like, God, I, don't, I brought this to you. I brought this to you. Therefore, you owe me something. Do you feel like God owes you something? Because you followed him, because you stood up and said, I've decided to follow Jesus, do you feel like God owes you something? You prayed this prayer and God didn't answer it the way that you want. Do you get angry at God? Do you get discouraged? Do you start doubting God and saying, I don't know if you really exist? If you do, then it's a pretty good sign that at a functional level, you're trusting yourself, not trusting God to be your acceptance, not trusting Jesus to be your acceptance. Here's another way that you know. When you don't get accepted, when you don't get the things that you want from God and other people do, you begin to get angry at them. When you pray a prayer, I want to be married by the time I'm 27. I'm 29, I didn't get married. They didn't pray that prayer, but they got married at 27, and you start getting angry at them. You say, what's wrong with them? And you plot and you wish, you secretly wish that their life was cursed instead of blessed. Right? That shows that we think that we can do something to twist the arm of God to make us more acceptable, that God owes us something. Faith knows that whom we trust 
is more important than what we bring to him. And trusting God is not just about our salvation, but it's about every moment of our lives. It's about trusting God even when things don't seem to go the way we think they ought to go. Do you still trust God? Because that's what it means to trust God. It doesn't just mean we trust God in the high times. It means we trust God in the dry times, in the low times, in the hard times as well. The other day, my daughter, Manny, first grader, came home from school and she said, Daddy, I checked out a book from the library. I checked out a book about Korea. I said, Manny, that's awesome. She said, it's only about South Korea because North Korea is bad. And she followed that up by saying, right, Daddy? And I said, Manny, no, North Korea is not bad. They have a leader who's wicked because he doesn't know Jesus and he's leading the people in the wrong way. And she said, yeah, he doesn't know Jesus. That's why our pastor friend is in jail in North Korea. I said, that's right. And she said, that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to go to jail because you tell people about Jesus. I think what she meant to say was that your, your liberties, your religious liberties should not be taken away from you because you preach Christ, you shouldn't be put in jail. But I think other people think of it in a different light. We think because I'm preaching Jesus, I ought not be put in jail. Because I'm doing something for Christ, hardship ought not touch my life. That's what a lot of us think. But faith isn't faith only when we trust God when things are going the way we think they ought to go. Faith and genuine trust in God is trusting him even when things don't seem to be working out the way we want them to work out. Yesterday I was eating lunch with a, with a couple ladies. One of them, uh, a lady named Miran Kim. Um, it was her whose son Joshua passed away in Ecuador. In about a, an hour and a half or so, there's going to be a golf tournament sponsored by the Joshua Foundation. When she heard that her son had passed away on the mission field. There are a million different responses that she could have come up with. And I was talking with a sister today as we were talking about, about Miran, and she said, I, if I was in the same situation, I'm not sure how I would respond. If my son had passed away and I got the phone call, do you hear that? She could have been angry. She could have been bitter. She could have shook her fist at God. She could have abandoned the church. She could have abandoned God. A million different things she could have done. But she said, God, I will trust you even in the face of the greatest pain of my life. The other lady who was there was James Ye's mother, Mrs. Ye, who also saw her son go home to be with the Lord. And as they were talking about it, I just felt like, man, I'm in, the, I'm in the presence of people who understand what faith is. The year before Joshua went home to be with the Lord, Mrs. Ye's son went home to be with the Lord. And she said, yeah, there were times where I said, God, you made a mistake. God, you messed up. You took the wrong person. You pushed the wrong button. You did the wrong thing. But she said, the more I prayed, the more I realized I began to trust that his plan is good and that he is perfect and that he knows even when I don't seem to know why. Because this is what faith does. It trusts God even when things don't seem to be working out the way that we envisioned they would work out. See, here's what, and, and I've said this before, but here's what a lot of our, what we think and what we call faith, a lot of it boils down to this. Is our faith really faith in God? Like, I trust God 
Or is it a faith in the plan that we have for how God ought to work? And if that doesn't work out, then we abandon faith in God. That might not really be faith in God then. That's more faith in how we think God ought to work. And if that doesn't pan out, then I'm going to say, I don't trust you, God. But our trust was never in God in the first place if that's going to cause our faith to be shaken to the point of abandoning God. Does that make sense? A lot of times our faith isn't truly in God, that whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Because the hard message of the fourth verse of the first of the hall of faith is that sometimes Faith doesn't mean things will always work out. Because as a result of the first act of worship, Abel was slaughtered for his faith in God. Hey, sometimes faith, sometimes faith means that we're going to soar on the mountaintops, but other times faith means that we walk with God in the valley of the shadow of death because he promises that he'll be with us through the lake. This is what faith means. Who we trust is more important than what we bring. So where's your trust? Where's your faith this morning? The last thing that we see is that faith creates echoes beyond the grave. It says in verse 4, and by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. I don't think the dream of any person who grows up I just want to live my life and I just want to die a quiet death and I want to be forgotten forever. Our desire in life is that our life would resonate and that we would make a difference, that I would enter into this world and I would leave the world in a better condition than I left. I did my part to live out God's purpose in my generation before I went home to be with the Lord. Our desire is to leave a legacy, to make a difference, to have a life that reverberates long after we're gone. I hope that's our life. That's our dream. That's our goal. That's our aim. The Greek philosopher said, this is how you do it. Okay, this is how you do it. Three things that you need to do. You need to build a home. You need to write a book. And you need to father a child. That's what they said to men. If you want to leave a legacy, right? Build a home, write a book, father a child. Because here's what Abel's life teaches us. In fact, the word Abel, he was named Abel. There's a Hebrew word, Hebel after which Abel was named. If you took Hebrew like Pastor Daniel did, he would be able to tell you that Hebel is the main word found in the Old Testament poetic book of Ecclesiastes. What Hebel means, it means a mist, a vapor. It's here today, bam, gone tomorrow. That's what Abel's life was. And if we're wise, we understand that all of us, like Abel, are just a mist, a vapor. Take a spray bottle of water, you spray it into the air, it's there for a moment, and then it disappears. Because that's life for all of us. We don't know how hard the lever is going to be pressed and how long it's going to be, but all of us will fade into, dare I say, oblivion. But the longing of every heart is that my life would be remembered long after my days on earth are done. What does it say in verse 4 at the end? It says, by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. 
And Abel tells us how. He says, listen, you live a life of faith. You give your best to God. You trust God. Your life will echo into eternity. See, in the time when Jesus was living, in the time that the Greek philosophers were writing, okay, uh, we look back on it and we can see there were two major powers, two major powers. There was Caesar and there was Christ. In the time that Jesus was living, nobody would say Jesus was all that. Uh, he was just a, a, a messianic, hopeful with a, with a group of followers, but nobody really gave much credence to the Jesus movement until after he died, after he rose again, and the movement began to pick up steam and it conquered the Roman Empire. But think about that. 120 people, right? 120 people gathered in the upper room and they're taking on the mighty Roman Empire, the motto of which was Caesar is Lord. You remember this, right? Romans 10.9. Everyone in the Roman Empire, this was their pledge of allegiance. Caesar is Lord. But Jesus and his people rose up and it was this this subversive movement where instead of saying Caesar's Lord, you would stand up and you'd say Jesus is Lord. So if you're, if you're looking down 33 AD and you see millions of people in the Roman Empire and you see 120 people, right, you see 120 people fighting against the mighty Roman Empire, who do you put your money on? It's very interesting, isn't it? Because Caesar, Augustus, did the very thing that the Greek philosophers said to do. He had massive building projects. He wrote many books dealing with poetry and architecture. He wrote, I think, a 13-volume autobiography. He adopted many children. He was married to three different women because he wanted to immortalize himself and leave a legacy that echoed into eternity. Juxtaposed alongside of the life of Caesar was this man, Jesus. Fathered no children, wrote no books, built no projects. He was a carpenter, so maybe he built a chair or a table or two. But besides that, not much else. But his life was lived in full-hearted devotion to the Father, giving his best, trusting him in good times as well as in bad times, even if it led him to a cross. So you've got two people. One, hail Caesar. The other, the crucified carpenter. And yet whose life echoes in 2,000 years later. See, what do we call ourselves? We call ourselves Christians. What does that mean? Christian literally means, right, you know this, little Christ. We number in the billions throughout the world. Little Christ. Little Caesars is a struggling pizza chain (laughs) relegated to the corners of America. Who really left their legacy? Whose life really is making a difference in the world? See, we go one of two ways. We will either live for a life defined by a tombstone or we will live a life that's defined by a testimony. One ends here on earth as Caesar's did, but the other echoes into eternity. At the end of your life, if your obituary were to be written today, what would it say? And would you be happy with that? Are you giving by faith your best to the God of infinite grace in whom you trust? Are you walking with him? Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let me break some hard news to you. I think most of us think we're able. At least we're progressing to be like Abel. 
But here's our deeper, harsh reality. Most of us are really like Cain, aren't we? I don't give God what he wants. I give what I want to give to him. I don't give God my best. I give him my leftovers. I don't give him the prime parts of my day. I give him the time when I feel like I want to give it to him, and I'm ready. Okay, fine, God. I don't have anything left to do on my to-do list. I'll spend time with you. Isn't that what we do? Aren't we a whole lot more like Cain than we are like Abel? Don't we get jealous when other people seem to be being blessed ahead of us? Don't we get jealous? Isn't it hard for us sometimes to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn because we're comparing ourselves to them and if we're doing better than them, we feel happy, then we can come alongside of them. If we're doing worse than them, we find it very difficult to rejoice with them. Isn't it hard for us to do that? Aren't we really a whole lot more like Cain than we wish to be? So how do we change? Here's how we don't change. By trying harder to be more like Cain, uh, more like Abel. I don't need to try hard to be like Cain. I'm already like him. It's not even by trying harder to be more like Abel. I'm going to come early. I'm going to do all that. That would be trusting in ourselves, wouldn't it? To be more acceptable to God. How then do we change to be less like Cain and more like Abel? Here's what happened. When Cain killed Abel in Genesis 4.10, it says, Cain, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What is it crying? What is it saying? What's the message of Abel's blood? Anytime innocent blood is shed, whether it be the blood of Abel, whether it be the blood of an unborn child, whether it be the blood of a refugee who's been slaughtered, whatever innocent blood has been shed, their blood cries out. What does it say? Avenge my life. God, avenge my life. Justice must be served for the worth of my life that was unjustly taken. And the blood of Abel cries out, vengeance and justice, may it be yours, God. But here's what happens. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, You will come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? That's what it means if the only thing that cries out is the blood of Abel for vengeance, for justice, the better word spoken by the blood of Jesus. Because you see, Jesus too, like Abel, gave a costly sacrifice. He gave his best to the Father. He trusted in him until his dying breath, innocently murdered for being a righteous man. But if the blood of Abel cries out for vengeance and justice, the blood of Jesus cries out for mercy. Mercy for people like Cain and mercy for people like you and me who bring a Cain-like offering to God. How do we change? Not by us trying better, but by looking beyond Abel to the one to whom Abel's life points. By looking to Jesus and saying, Jesus, the reason your blood was shed was for the forgiveness of my transgressions because I did not follow you faithfully, because I did not trust you wholeheartedly, because I did not give you the best worship, when the blood of another would cry out for vengeance, your blood cries out for my forgiveness. 
And when we trust in him and we trust in his grace and we trust that our acceptance is in the blood of another, not in our own doings, then can we come and say, God, I give you my best because faith is always a response to the grace of God. So today as we come, understanding God's grace, looking to Jesus, may our hearts be changed, may they be transformed so that trusting in Jesus, we can give the very best that we have to offer to God. And as we do, God says, by faith, your life will speak even beyond the grave. Let's pray. Let's respond to the mercy of God for just a couple moments right now. Can we do that? Part of giving our best to God in worship is right now saying, Lord, I want to, I want to think upon your grace. I want to think upon your mercy. I'm accepted not because I give the best offering. Remember, without faith, the best offerings are unacceptable. Let's renew our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Say, God, I rededicate my life to you. I recommit my life to you. I replace my trust in you again. My heart has wandered, and I've trusted in my own goodness, my own righteousness, my own deeds, my own efforts, and I've realized that they've been bankrupt before a perfect God. But what you alone can do for me, Jesus, through the cross and through your blood that was shed is earn in my acceptance that I can come freely and give to you the very best that I have. It's not about what's in my hands. It's about what's in my heart that you look at. And you're looking for faith. Let's renew our trust in the Lord God today. Can we do that? If you haven't put your trust in Christ before, I'm not going to give an invitation here in this moment, but I'm going to say, why don't you do that? Why don't you pray in your heart, Jesus, come into my life. Be my Savior. Be my source of acceptance before God. Forgive me and help me to be who you want me to be. And for those who have already put your trust in Christ, but your faith has grown cold, let's rekindle that. Let's have a holy dissatisfaction. Say, Lord, I want to believe. I want to trust. I need you. If you are who you say you are, I can kick and I can scream and I can get bitter, but I would be kicking and screaming, becoming bitter at the only one who's able to sustain me through these challenges. Let's pray together for just a minute or so. I'll pray on our behalf, and then we'll continue to respond by giving the best offerings that we have in faith. Let's pray. Let's respond for a minute right now before we... uh, I pray for us and we continue in our worship. heaven, thank you that you fulfilled the promise of Genesis 3.15, not only to Abel, but you fulfilled that to us as well. To the countless saints who looked forward to the fulfillment of that promise, and by faith they gave their all to you, even at the cost of their lives. 
we thank you that there in this cloud of witnesses and Abel's voice cries out to us, he's worth it, keep going, keep running the race. So that people like us who can look back on that promise and its fulfillment can see a reason why we clearly can trust in you. Because Jesus is the great fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and of every promise that finds its yes and amen in him. May we love you more. May we trust you more. May that grace unlock our hearts and unlock faith in order that we might give the very best that we have to you. Thank you for loving us, for accepting us. We love you because you've loved us first. May we give you our very best in response because that's what faith does. In Jesus' name we pray.